Oh, there we go. Hi again, and welcome to Better Than The Movie. I am Jeanette, she is Tamika, and we are here talking books. How was you doing, my friend? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm all right, you know, living a dream. Are you? <laughs> Share the wealth. <laughs> That's a lie. Girl, I know, but you know, we just gonna make it. We are gonna make it because we are black ladies and black ladies always. I was listening to this podcast today. Let me drop, let me drop one gym on y'all. <laughs> I was listening to the Super Soul podcast um, episodes with Maya Angelou. And Mother Oprah and Mother Angelou were like, the ancestors carry us. Our crown has already been paid for. Ooh. So there. That's it. <laughs> and God loves you. And you can do anything as long as God who created, who is all, capital A-L-L, you know, loves you. You know, if you're an atheist, you know, just don't worry about that part. But, um, yes. So that lifted me up through the day. That's why I went to work extra sassy. Like the ancestors told me to tell y'all to shut my damn door. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Anyway. All right. Tell people they can find us on the It's Way Ups to make up. So you can find us on betterthanthemovie.com or at Twitter at betterthantm. You can also find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash better than the movie. That Facebook thing is about to go the way of the Google voice number. <laughs> we don't get our shit together. Um, but you can, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, want to chime in about anything we discussed on this um, episode, it's probably best to tweet us seriously. But anyway, we have lots of news. So let's try to shuffle through. Shuffle through. <clears throat> All right. My sincerest apologies. <laughs> I had to clear my You're all good. So um, this first set of news uh, articles that we have <laughs> is talking about this new prize for um, it's their literary prize, excuse me, for thrillers that um, do not have any violence against women. Yeah. It's called the Staunch Book Prize. Mm-hmm. And it said that it has been founded to honor books where no woman is beaten, stalked, sexually exploited, raped, or murdered. Yeah. So um, I learned about this from what's her name? Um, damn, sorry. No disrespect, friend. Um, Tayari Jones. And um, she posted it on her Facebook. And she was kind of like, I'm into it. You know, this is a, a good thing. I felt like um she says the person who founded this name Bridget Lala she's an author and screenwriter um she says this was her quote about it it's way past time for something more original as violence against women in fiction reaches a ridiculous high the Sanj book prize invites thriller writers to keep us on the edge of our seats without resorting to the same old cliches, particularly female characters who are sexually assaulted, however necessary to the plot, are done away with, however ingeniously. Uh, she said she was moved to launch the prize after seeing a number of film featuring, films featuring a rape, featuring rape as a plot device at last year's BAFTAs, which is like the British Oscars. Mm -hmm. uh, she is entitled to vote in the awards, but this year abstained that it 
uh, telling The Guardian uh, that it was not clear if the films in the running were free from the accusations of secu sexual abuse that have swept Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So, hmm. Hmm. Do you read a lot of crime fiction? I feel like we both read some. Yeah, I read a fair amount of crime fiction. And okay, so here's my thing, right? I don't find that there are a disproportionate number of books that necessarily feature women being brutalized. Mm -hmm. And hand in hand with that is if you're reading crime fiction, chances are someone is going to have been victimized, right? Be it man or woman, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think that this is more. I don't know. I think that this is more about not necessarily broadening the reins of crime fiction and the, you know, the different paths down which authors travel. Mm -hmm. um, it's less about that, I feel, and more about, I don't know how to say this without it, like, sounding hella offensive, but, like, almost, like, trying to jump on the Me Too bandwagon thing, mm -hmm. right? So, like, mm -hmm saying that you know oh all this crime fiction only features uh sexual violence against women and that's the only manner in which women can be incorporated into these stories um is if they have some sort of brutality levied upon them which is uh completely false like there are plenty of crime fiction novels in which the women are the detectives right or officers or private investigators right like right. I just, I don't know. I, I read probably uh, being generous. I'll say 20% of my reading is crime fiction. Okay. Um, and of that 20%, like I can't readily recall reading too many books where women are brutalized, but I also don't read shit like the girl on a train unless I'm forced to for a book club. Right. So I think, I don't know. So here's my thing about it. I feel a couple of, I have a few things. First of all, the reality of the situation is that a lot of crimes are perpetuated against women. Um, and that whether you um, write about a murder or a kidnapping or whatever, nine times, I don't want to say nine times, there is a high probability that with that crime comes some sort of brutality or sexual assault against a woman. That's just it. Whether that, I mean, that, that, that would, that's realistic. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in doing that and, and trying to what there was a counter article here um, that I really agreed with. She kind of touched on how I felt about it, where it was like, some people feel empowered by that. There is a, way it, it allows the writer to say, hey, this is how women who are sexually assaulted are treated. This is how these crimes are treated. Um, this is how brutal uh, men can be towards women. Um, this is the danger that we face every day. And I don't think um, that there is anything wrong with writing about that. I think it's more along the lines of if you're trying to um, protect people from this you know what I mean? From this, from sexual assault in this uh, work and this type of work in books, the type of work being books, where's my words today? <laughs> um, you could maybe tell them, I don't know, warn them, but I don't know if the idea is to try to do this in the name of it being progressive, because I mean, what kind of crime fiction story? 
I mean, why all, why <clears throat> sexual assault is terrible, but then if you're going to go that far, okay, no murders either. And don't, yep. get no women. And like, you where, know what I mean? Where's the line? Where's the, the line? Um, the counter article, there's a line in here, which succinctly, uh, succinctly wraps up how I feel. It says that the staunch prize could have instead been created to honor the novel that most powerfully or sensitively tackles the problem of violence against women and girls. Right. And I was going to say that because I felt like she, the the author of the counter article is Sophia Hanna, and she's saying that why, why any sort of uh, writing prize that is based on what you're taking away or what you're um, restricting and not what you're actually doing in the work is a no. Um, and I feel that like, there is a way to write about sexual assault. Like uh, we, I don't want to get too deep into it because I think we plan to do some episodes about it, but a really good, um, a good example. Um, we've been, or I've been talking to and I just talking about, and I just finished the Ed, Eleanor. Why do I keep calling her Eleanor? Eloise. <laughs> Eloise Norton's books uh, by Rachel Housel Hall. And the one was a trail of echoes. That was all about, you know, girls and women being brutalized and the way that they did that, I don't know if she, she did an amazing job, you know, covering that. And I think it can be done really well, but I also, I want to say I'm not being glib because I know there are some where it's excessive. Like, I don't know if you've read, have you read Pretty Girls by Karen Slaughter? I have not, no. It is rough. And I don't know if it if it's really a crime fiction so much as it's like I guess it's thriller. Yeah, this covers thrillers too, but it is pretty. It's out there, and I like out there, but it is pretty dark and um, almost excessively. You know what I'm saying? So I get where she's going with it, but I do feel like it's a little bit like hop on the bandwagon. And yeah, you can do better than that. I don't know. Yeah, I was just like, hmm, I feel like your your initial overall concept was probably good, but I don't think the execution is. Right, know. right. Anyway, well, good luck with everybody who's going to try to shoot for that staunch prize. You do win some money if that's your cup of tea. Okay, are you ready to get mad? Um, yeah, you know, I got a lot to be mad about. That's what Solange told me. Um, <laughs> you start this one. So I was on Twitter, minding my black ass business, and just scrolling. Mm -hmm. And I came across an article that was tweeted, and it said, You know how people have like those Twitter newspaper things or whatever? Have you ever seen that? I don't think so. Where's oh, yes, it's like a like, yeah, newsletter and it's articles. Yeah, I got yeah. So it's like somebody's newspaper thing, and the highlighted article was titled How to Make Money Self Publishing Short Romance Novels on Amazon. And so I was like, okay, you know, I write short romance novels. I would like to make more money. Let me click this and read it. Mm -hmm. So it was written by some lady. What's her name? Michelle Schroeder Gardner, right? Yes. Oh, wait, no. Sorry, it was written by Yuanda Black. I was gonna say that name did not sound black enough because I knew it was a black lady who wrote this one. <laughs> <laughs> so Yuanda um, wrote this article and um, the foreword or like the little inter, uh, the introduction says, she has an interesting side hustle making extra money writing romance novels. In one month, she was able to make $3,211.57 doing this, enjoy. 
right? Mm -hmm. So she goes on to talk about how, you know, she's been a freelance writer. She comes from a publishing background, blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. So she decides to write a book in 2002. Um, so she wrote an ebook. Uh, she published it. It didn't do very well. Then we got to 2013, where she decided to step into fiction. Mm -hmm. So she started writing fiction and specifically romance because I want to say like her sister was doing it or something mm -hmm. um, and had found a modicum of success writing. So mm -hmm. she's like, oh, my sister did it. You know, during the first three weeks, she sold almost 600 copies, da, 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 whatever, whatever. So she was like, oh, well, she has my sister is doing it. Like I can do it. So she Googles how to write a romance novel. Okay. Um, and she follows this outline or whatever, and she wrote a book, right? Wrote a novella, less than 30,000 words. So she wrote it, she uploaded it. It did not do well. In the first month, she sold six copies. <clears throat> she said, oh, well, I thought I gave it a shot. But then her sister told her, maybe you should try writing an interracial romance. Maybe that has something to do with your lack of sales. Mm. And this, my friends, is where the fuck the anger began to build. Yuanda goes on to say, you see, my first romance novella had been an African-American love story. My sister had written an interracial romance, but I thought, love is love. I can't see it making that much of a difference. Boy, was I wrong. In the spring of 2014, I wrote my second romance novella, an interracial love story. Bam, mm. sales. Mm. Okay. So tell us why you mad. <laughs> so, that insinuation, right, that interracial sells more than um, Negro romance is just dumb. Um, the, the, the romance genre is very fickle and it's hit or miss and it's, getting the right eyes on your books in order to get those people to talk. Cause it's, it's not about necessarily. And this is going to sound like real shady when I say it, cause in my brain, I was like, wow, this sounds shady, but it's not necessarily about the quality of the content in some cases. Sometimes people are so thirsty for a story that star people that look like them mm -hmm. that you could write a story that's just okay, but they're going to support it because, hey, it's two Black main characters in love. This story makes sense. It's grammatically sound. Let's go, right? Mm -hmm. So this insinuation that interracial romance sells more than Black romance, whatever. But then I kept reading, and she just dug the hole even deeper. So... She said that she published over 35 novellas within a 12-month span. She was publishing a novel every 7 to 14 days or so. Wow. So I am going to hazard a guess that her work was probably shit. Okay. But she benefited from riding a wave. And so when she says, oh, I made... I'm scrolling back up to the top so I can get the right amount. When she says, I made $3,211 writing romance novels in one month. Well, when you have 35 books out there, hmm, let me do some simple math. Excuse right. me while I navigate to my situation here. 
3211 divided by 35. That's less than $100 per book. So <laughs> are you really banking? Are you really making enough money where you can say that this is a side hustle that's profitable? I don't really think so. And um, you, was I, it, you're making $1,000 a month, but you also had to put in a whole lot more manpower hours in order to get to those. So like by the time I get 35,000 books, I mean, 35 books, I'm pretty sure that I'll be making multiple thousand dollars because you just build like somebody finds book number 34. If they like it, they go back and read one through 33. So the whole like premise of this article being, oh, if you write short, cheap books, you can make a lot of money. It's just bullshit. And I think it cheapens the work that people do to actually create quality content. Right. It angered me because it is part of the reason why people talk so much shit about indie published books because people do shit like this and they yeah. think oh that's how everybody shit is burn and churn yeah that's what i was gonna say i was um i know i you know you read a lot of like blog posts and articles and stuff about how to make side hustle money and blah 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 and then one of the ones that they use pretty consistently is for people to write a book, you know, and write an ebook and people will, you know, and they have this, like, if you go on Fiverr, there are people that will help you promote your book. I don't really know how that works, but it makes it seem like, like you said, it cheapens it. And it also is just a matter of, um, being greedy. Mm -hmm. I feel the same way about this is the way I feel about interracial romance books not having their own category mm -hmm. because I feel like there are only so many spots especially if you're a black person you should acknowledge that we only have so many spots right and there we only have so many categories I should say and there are only so many spots at the top and there are people who work really really hard regardless of if their book is 20 pages or 2,000 pages they work really really hard to get that out and they do it because they love doing it. And if you're taking up space because just because you can, I just don't understand why I do that. Like, what is the value in that? And I really keep going after Amazon to do something to help indie writers because the categories are what they are, but it's just like, you have to have some sort of guidelines. You've got to have some something to keep the stuff like this from happening. Like if you are turning out novellas, make a turning out novella section. I don't know, but just don't, I'm, you can't really restrict who does what, but you can as a writer, if you're a true writer who really cares, be conscious of that. Like, you know, I write slow, <laughs> but I'm not just gonna be like, oh, well, let me just, if I really put my mind to it, I could probably write a something in 30 days, whether it's good or not, whether it, you know, fucks it up for the genre or not, I don't care. I'm just going to keep writing and keep writing and keep writing and putting stuff out there, putting stuff out there. Like, it, I, I'm conscious of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that you're conscious of that. I think that the other indie writers that we know are conscious of that. It is probably nothing for any of us to get on a doc and write a book over the weekend if, we, if it was just going to be anything. Right. But you don't do that. Like, it's just nasty. To me, it's gross. Like, it's like, where is, you have no integrity. Disgusting to me. Exactly. You have zero integrity. Like, you're just after a quick buck. And 
I think it's taking advantage of people too. Yeah. Because you know that there's a hunger for, you know, a particular market. And so you're preying on these people. And maybe I'm being a bit dramatic about this, but I don't know. I'm mm. looking at an author and I'm looking at it as a reader. Like mm. I don't want to feel like you're just like, oh, I'm gonna turn and burn and you know, they'll they'll buy them. Like I don't get and understand the slave master Nazi shit, you know, that goes on in interracial <laughs> romance. I don't get it. There's an audience for it. And they're always, it seems like they are like ravenous for more of that. And so if I had no soul, sorry, not sorry. If I had no soul and I wanted to write those kind of books, I could do that. And I will probably have a good audience and make money bank doing it. But I have a soul. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I don't want to have to have you or Christina or um or Love Belvin or anybody having to compete with my book about some black lady falling in love with a damn Nazi. Like I'm not I got a soul. I'm sorry if that offends anybody who writes or reads that shit, but eh, you should care more about the work. <laughs> but you know. Anyway. We'll be how people be, but yeah, enough of that. Malarkey. I'm just I am actively going to rail against nonsense in the black folks section of Amazon. Like take that shit somewhere else. <laughs> Maybe they could make a hodgepodge section. Um <laughs> <laughs> some shit over here. That's that name of that section. Anyway, what are we gonna do? Or are we running behind? Are we running long? Or what are we doing? I don't think so, because we were mad short last time. Okay. So, so I feel like we can go ahead and like breeze through okay. these next two. All right. And I want to talk in depth about the last one. I got you. Okay. So this next article is for people who are um, theater nerds like us. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Playbill published um, an article um, of 15 new theater-related reads out this spring. So there are some memoirs on this list, mm -hmm. um, a couple of biographies, and then a couple of like history of Broadway um, type things. Yeah. The ones I'm most interested in, right off rip, <laughs> of course, to say. Um, there is Falling Up, How to Take Risks, Aim Higher, and Never Stop Learning by Leslie Odom Jr. Um, I would be really happy if he was going to sing some stuff on the audiobook, but I don't think he is. That's fine. <laughs> it is a uh, memoir from Leslie Odom Jr. Um, I'm also interested in, oh, it comes out March 27th. I am also interested in this Maggie Smith joint because Maggie Smith oh, is the shit. Day, Maggie Smith. All day, every day. Oh. Uh, give her her flowers. Yeah. Um, did you watch, are you a Downton Abbey fan? So I watched Downton for like the first two and a half seasons. Yeah. And then I had to let it go. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I was I was with him. And then I, I said, you know, I can't. I already, <laughs> mm-mm. Mm -mm. But it was good while it lasted. It was but she was, was she it. was full so she, of she yeah. was the she was the meme queen before there was memes were hot. Like yes. <laughs> she was the gift mistress. <laughs> no, anyway, uh, her book comes out March twenty eighth. Uh, I'm not mad at Marsha K. Harden. I like her. I do too. Um, yeah, the seasons of my mother, a memoir of love, family, and flowers. And this one was the one about. Um, her mother having Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's like near and dear and close to my heart. I think that is really, really cool. That one comes out May 1st. 
any more that you're interested uh, in? I'm going to take a hijack. <laughs> yeah, Kenny Leon um, has a memoir coming out, Take You Wherever You Go. Um, and it's about his life from, <clears throat> excuse me, it says from his humble beginnings in rural Florida to becoming the first African-American director to win a Tony Award, which when we say like this person is the first and they're so current, yeah. it's like, holy cow. Um, but that comes out June 5th. Um, and then also there was, oh, this historians on Hamilton, mm -hmm. how a blockbuster musical is restaging America's past. I am interested to read this. It probably won't be high up on my TBR list. Yeah. I'm interested to read it because I want to know what historians are saying about um, mm -hmm. Hamilton, because a lot of people um, who aren't historians like to um, raggedy, I guess, a false two cents. historical. Um, okay. so I really like to, so it says it's um, essays from um, over a t dozen top scholars who look into what this Broadway hit says about history and culture today. Girl, it was somebody aside, there was somebody on Twitter the other day that said some shit about Hamilton that was so false, but she thought she had a hit with that tweet. I was like, girl, <laughs> it was something like he made, he was a slave trader and he, this fool made a rap uh opera hip opera about him that that's the one i saw and they didn't like, even address that. i'm like bitch it was in the first song, <laughs> first song. like uh do you even hamilton bro it's all up and through that play <laughs> like <laughs> i know i know everybody couldn't get tickets let me lightweight stunt but <laughs> however the soundtrack was on spotify for you to enjoy sis uh, it was wow. all up and through all up and through anyway um oh i you want you this all that jazz when the his the life and times of musical Chicago I'm into that yes and then they've got some cool like these theater books the by design the five decades of theater poster art from Broadway that's a cute coffee table book they should have saved that one for Christmas really I my little sister I don't know she listens to our podcast whatever I would get that for her because she kind of steals um playbills and <laughs> <laughs> she would be into that oh that's hilarious um. But yeah, those are that's those. There you go. There you go. Good, good uh, everything that we discussed, by the way, I think we say this every show, but just want to reiterate, it will be in the show notes um, and clickable links on our website. And I think links are clickable in the podcast app now. So shout out to Apple for finally coming to the 21st century. We're almost there. I still have some complaints, but we'll save that <laughs> for complaints with Tamika next week's episode. <laughs> Uh, oh my right. gosh, what kind of, uh, oh god, this is just, oh, <laughs> 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 shit. Oh my goodness, okay, oh, let me collect. The Lord giveth and the Lord <laughs> taketh away. Um, so Lupita Nyong'o and Denai Guerrero are adapting Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Americana for television, according to the AV Club. Which um, I feel like Lupita bought those um, the rights to Americana like as soon as the book came out. So that was a minute ago, right? Right, because she was. It says she was gonna. She was gonna have it. It was gonna be Daniel Oyelowo. Oyelowo. I mess it up every time. Oyelowo. Oyelowo. Uh, they spelled it wrong. They did. I'm pretty sure they did. Okay. Um, I remember that. Somewhere. Yeah, so um, uh, Denai is writing and Lupita is playing Ephem, which 
if I have to be like perfectly honest, I have to say that that is perfect casting. I am very much more so into the fact that Denai is writing it. <laughs> oh. And the reason why I say that is perfect mm -hmm. casting because Lupita gets on my goddamn nerves and so did Efem. So I feel like match made in heaven. Um, I really hate that uh, when we were in New York, we didn't get to see Eclipse. Yeah. Um, if we had one more day, I would have made, we could have made that happen. I, happen. yeah. We were on short time. But um, I'm really interested to see how this will look being adapted for television. I mean, yeah, and it depends on what TV are we talking about. It doesn't say, because if it's like HBO, it could just be a TV movie, right? I think it's, well, so oh, it's a miniseries. Series, but so it's something like a Big Little Lies. Um, yeah, I'm thinking that it's probably going to be like a serial thing where it's like six or, what was like, what was it, six episodes of Big Little Lies? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I just don't see it though, because where's the cliffhangers in Americana? Like that's what that's why I'm like interested to know how they're gonna reframe it, because I feel like they're gonna have to reframe it a bit in order for it to translate. To where's be the conflict in Americana? What am I? What am I watching? Hello. Um, watching <laughs> yes. A haughty, efem <laughs> as she. Maneuvers through life. I mean, I mean not enough conflict for you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh, you know, I was being completely facetious by it. Like, how many hours are we gonna devote to her dating a white guy that she don't really like so much? You're <laughs> <laughs> messing up her perm. I mean, sure, whatever. Let me not rehash that. If you'd like to hear my thoughts about the Americana, go all the way back to episode one, two. Yes, or two and a half. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's like 1.5 or something. But you know, I'm always here. I am Lupita ain't on my nerves yet. I like her still. And deny, way to go. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so this last thing was actually brought to our attention um, via friend of the show, Zora Tony Maya Nakia. <laughs> I like when people tell us things. Um. And she had uh, directed me to this thread, which I saw um, a couple days ago. So there's an author named Danielle Clayton. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called The Bells. I don't know what this book about is about, excuse me. Um, I just know that she is a Black woman who wrote a YA book, and it stars Black people. Okay. But other than that, I don't know what the book is about. So she wrote this whole thread. It's like 4,000 tweets. But the first tweet in the thread says, I wish there were more Black reviewers, y'all. I am really tired of hot takes on my book from white ladies. Oh, I'm, tired of, I'm tired of Black pain being the standard bearer of Blackness and those writers who don't use it overtly as an instrument for character building or world building get marked down. The expectation is that I am black and thus will always write about race and black issues. This is a staggering expectation and one that I am happy to do because those things bother me deeply. But if I don't do it explicitly, then I am not. It is a heavy weight. Can you translate that? Um, translate that to short attention span. 
sure, right? So she's basically saying that just because she's black don't mean she got to write about black shit. And I mean, I do write about black shit, but I don't really like say it's black shit directly. I just like kind of inadvertently say it. But then the white women don't get the inadvertent ways in which I say that this is about some black shit. And so <sighs> it's just annoying to me. But oh. here's my thing. 500 tweets down, she at Justina Ireland, and she says she texted her, and that's all I need to know. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Here's where I um, had to stop and giggle at myself. Because I read this whole thing. She's basically saying, like, oh, you know, white people can't decode black stuff, da 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, like, did anybody associate it with your book, the process of publishing your book, the process of publicizing your book, the process of you being on a book tour that she makes sure to mention. Um, Did any of you guys like, I don't know, seek out black book reviewers? Did you try to find black book clubs? That just sounds too much like easy. Acts better than the movie. Do y'all read YA? Because we heard you was a black literary podcast. And if you do, we got some shit for you to read. Like, I don't know why people think that audiences magically find your shit when no one knows you. Because anybody can email us for ARC or anybody else. I can think of three, four people offhand that do book reviews that have a reasonable following um, who would be happy. Other fucking black literature podcasts. Did y'all reach out to Mostly Lit? Did y'all talk to the black, uh, what is it, Black Chit Lit? Oh, shit, I'm fucking up. I don't know black what you're talking about. Lit Chat or whatever the fuck. Like, can, we t- can we talk about something real quick? Mm-hmm. So, let me just, because I'm reading this tweet about just that she said Justina Ireland was like, bitch, you wrote a book about slavery. And I'm like, why is that? A, what is, okay, don't they say that on the cover, right? <laughs> like why are we were you speaking in code and the answer to that question is kind of so she said just at justina ireland busted me on the, busted me the other week she texted me while reading the bells girl you wrote a book about slavery she sniffed out my codes and the nuances not a single white trade reviewer or interviewer has note had has notes this i think she has notes on this or noted this white folks there are things you don't see so i'm like it's a book about slavery what is it that they don't see well here we go camellia beauregard is a bell in the opular opulent world of orleans bells are revered for they control beauty and beauty with a capital b is a commodity coveted above all else on orleans the people are born gray they are born damned and only with the help of a bell and her talents can they transform and be made beautiful well, that's why I didn't nobody know it was about slavery. That's not nuanced. <laughs> why did you make some gray? Help me. I'm really okay. I'm not interested to read this book. Not in the least. I know what you just. I know what we just said. But we was don't send the shit to Well, no. I was just gonna say I'm 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 not interested to read because I just me and YA books we have a low paid relationship. Um, but I am kind of interested to read because I want to know what these nuanced codes were that the white people didn't pick up that maybe my Negro eyes can find. I mean, I'm looking at the cover and I just assumed shit was about slavery. Bells, Orleans, old timing. What the hell was happening with black people in the old times? Slavery, what the fuck? And so she also goes on to say, 
uh, PSA white lady reviewers, as we approach the release of my wifey, Tommy Adiemi's badass children of blood and blood and bone, please stop trying to pit us against each other. Black women don't get down like y'all do. You trashing her or trashing me and lifting one of us up won't divide us. I'm here for all forms of black girl magic. Our greatest strength as a people is our variety. Look at some of our greats. Zora, Nella, Virginia, Octavia, Mamanda, Maya, Tony, Alice, Audrey, Gwendolyn, Rita, Lucille. They're all so different. That's the beauty. We ain't you. This okay. friend, first of all, Roxanne Gay reviewed this thing on, at least she reviewed it on Goodreads. I'll say that. Um, but I'm looking at the people who did review this book and I'm wondering what that marketing did because what does that marketing plan do over at Disney Hyperion? Because all of these people just about to review this book of white, except for I count two. So maybe and you're like, not mad at the reviewers. You need to be mad at your publicist. You need to be mad at your people. Yeah. Your people did not represent you well. Like, I just... But girl, you don't get what you ask for. You keep it on. Ain't nobody gonna review your shit. <laughs> white or black. Because I don't, you know, the same my jam. And it didn't seem to be... It didn't seem to be marketed to um, the blacks. And that's the thing. If you don't market something to an audience, how can you get mad that that audience isn't reading and reviewing? And I get the larger point of, oh, well, if it got read and reviewed by, you know, larger literary sites and things of that nature, they could have probably tried to find a black. Maybe they tried to find a black and the black was like, mm, not really my cup of tea, sis. I'm at the pass. Like, right. right. You wanted your shit to be reviewed by Publishers Weekly or Kirkus or who the fuck ever. So it got reviewed by the people that you wanted to get reviewed by. If your publisher or publicist did not try to vary the types of people that they sent your book to, because pretty sure y'all motherfuckers sent out ARCs, like through somebody. You're on Twitter enough that you wrote a thread of 5,000 tweets, like you couldn't send out a tweet. With some hashtags like, hey, any YA bloggers of color? Because let's be clear, I feel like this is one of those things where she wouldn't have been mad if there were some of color people who had reviewed and picked up on her breadcrumbs, as she called them. Like, I don't know. I just, I don't feel like if you don't market to an audience and that audience doesn't see your shit, then white people are to blame for that. And it took a lot for me to just say that sentence right now. But at some point you have to look at your white people and figure out what they did wrong. Like white people in mass who are in these positions to read and review aren't the ones that let you down this time, sis. And to be perfectly honest, if it's white people in the mainstream, even if it's, or even if it's not, even if it's white book bloggers with large followings, I mean, I get what she's saying to an extent, but at the same time, I'm like, it's a lot of black writers out here, especially that write the type of fantasy stuff that she does that are just wanting to get put on. Um, I remember, or not even get put on, but just to be reviewed. Um, I just know last week, Tayari Jones had put that on her Instagram Twitter and Facebook about how she used to be bitter or upset. I don't want to say bitter, but upset that the New York Times wouldn't review her books, you know, and she had to find other ways to kind of, okay, they're not going to review what these people will or whatever. But when they did, she was excited about it. She was happy about it. 
and I and I under I know what we say. I know what we all believe about not worrying. I mean, there's a difference between thinking the white man's ice is colder and also just wanting to be acknowledged as a good writer. Period. Despite um, your color, you know, not the best black writer or a good black woman writer, but just a good writer. And I think there's a place for that. So I'm not really shedding a lot of tears for her for getting reviews. She's got a book tour going. It looks like her book is doing well. This. Um, um, not to, I'm sorry, not to cut you off, but I swear I remember, like, I feel like she had a cover reveal in Entertainment Weekly. Yeah, I'm like, girl, catch up with me. Bro, like, do you realize how many other people who are signed to major publishing contracts and their people don't get them shit like that? But I guess if you got the luxury to complain about too many folks, too many folks reviewing your books, and you don't want, if you only want black women to review your books, I promise you, we, there are plenty of black women that will take that book and read it and review it. Now, your sales might drop because we don't have the audiences that white girls have, but you know, you get what you ask for and you keep putting that out in the universe, sis. Anyway, good luck. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry you got too many white people reviewing your books. Well, good day. Damn. I bet you don't mind the white people buying that. <laughs> they white ass dollars buying that joint at all. Why has she got us defending white folks? <laughs> That's why I was like, I was so mad that it it pained my heart for me to say that white people wasn't to blame. I feel you. We love y'all, <laughs> white listeners, but y'all know what we're saying. Anyway, um, me, an intellectual. No, um, I think we're done with that. Yeah, we're done with news. <sighs> <laughs> so we told y'all, was it two weeks ago? Yeah. To get to reading um, this one, Little Fires Everywhere by Celise Ng. Celeste? <laughs> <laughs> um, hi. That's what we're discussing today. Yes, it is. Um, let me tell you something. Don't, <laughs> let pick, don't let me pick the books no more. No. Um, so let's start here. I have an idea of how to approach this book. Okay. So before we get into the discussion, I'm going to just read the yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing, yeah. thing real quickly. Um, so uh, the, what's this synopsis? <laughs> Everyone in Shaker Heights was talking about it that summer, how Isabel, the last of the Richardson children, had finally gone around the bend and burned the house down. In Shaker Heights, a placid progressive serve suburb, excuse me, of Cleveland, everything is meticulously planned from the layout of the winding roads to the colors of the houses to the successful lives its residents will go on to lead. And no one embodies this spirit more than Elena Richardson, whose guiding principle is playing by the rules. Enter Mia Warren, mm-hmm. an enigmatic artist and single mother. Is that me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Who arrives in this idyllic bubble with her teenage daughter, Pearl, and rents a house from the Richardsons. Soon Mia and Pearl become more than just tenants. All four Richardson children are drawn to the alluring mother-daughter pair. But Mia carries with her a mysterious past and a disregard for the rules that threaten to upend this carefully ordered community. Mm-hmm. When the Richardson's friends attempt to adopt a Chinese-American baby, a custody battle erupts that dramatically divides the town and puts Mia and Mrs. Richardson on opposing sides. So, uh, sorry, 
just a little bit more. Suspicious of Mia, her motives, Mrs. Richardson becomes determined to uncover the secrets in Mia's past, but her obsession will come at unexpected and devastating cost to her own family and Mia's. Little Fires Everywhere explores the weight of long-held secrets and the ferocious pull of motherhood and the danger of believing that planning and following the rules can avert disaster or heartbreak. Hi, Ellen. Hello, we're back. No, I'm trying to long what did you so what did you think of the book? I did not like this book. You did not like it. It pained me to say that I did not like this book because I loved everything I never told you, which was Lusting's first book. Yeah. Um I clawed my way through this book. Uh-huh. I got maybe not even halfway. I'll say maybe a third of the way through the book. No. Yeah, maybe a third of the way through the book. And I was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I told Samika I was going to read this. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> beautiful Power cover. through, sis. Beautiful, beautiful cover. Um, gowns, beautiful gowns. I did. I feel like my last couple of book reviews on the show have been very wishy-washy. So I'm going <laughs> to take a stand today and say... Um, I didn't hate, I didn't like it. (laughs) I didn't, I hated all of the characters. I hated, I felt duped. (laughs) Yeah. We don't, we don't typically read a lot of books with all white characters, casts. And I wasn't really clear. Um who was what and not that it matters but it did kind of matter because there was a lot of white people type problems mm-hmm. and so and so um yeah, yeah and, white, and this book was white except for the chinese baby okay okay so and that's the only person i was rooting for in the movie was the baby <laughs> in the book oh so, and the chinese baby's mama here's the thing about this here is the thing um Here's how, I'm, let's talk about the writing. The way this book was written, I think will help us <laughs> review this book. It will help me. Okay. The book, Celeste, I'm gonna say like we're friends. Celeste will give you a slow burn, right? Everything I never told you was not explosive. Um, it was very quiet at first and it kind of picked up, um, but it was very much about the family and what was going on in people's heads and the dynamic. And it wasn't a very, even though the plot was, I mean, there was some interesting and, you know, there were things happening. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a s- s- plot driven book. You know what I mean? It was definitely a character driven book to me. Oh, absolutely. Okay. And yeah. so, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I was just going to say to me, everything I never told you seemed way more intimate than this book seemed. Right. Right. And so with this book, the way she wrote it, I'll just give you, because you know I struggled through this book to finish it, just like you did, maybe worse. And I ended up at some point turning the book to the end and like just kind (laughs) of flipping (laughs) 50 pages back. And I was not lost at all. I knew exactly (laughs) what was happening. So there's about like 40, 50 pages in the middle that I didn't even read, but I know exactly what happened. And I say that because not only did we get to a certain point, I guess, you know, the 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 
climax of the book and sort of like the, you know, the resolution. But she kept restating <laughs> what oh. happened, what had unfolded. And it what? was too freaking long. It was too long. I just felt like I got to the end and I was like, this the end? Yeah. I was like, so what? Who cares a shit? The only thing that was exciting. Oh, spoilers. We spoil in our book reviews. Oh, yeah. We talk as if you've already read the book. Well, but when sister, our Chinese sister took that baby to Canton. I was <laughs> <laughs> yes. like, hey, no, girl, you go. I said, you I better get on that plane and get up out the U.S. Like, I didn't think you had it in you. <laughs> I said, yes, you go. You take your baby and you take her you back. Get the to hell me. out of here. Oh, right the damn. Um, so there's a subplot, guys, here where um, friends of <laughs> they um so this baby this chinese baby is found abandoned outside of a fire station um and then she ends up being adopted by friends of the richardson family and um it comes to pass that the reason why the child was abandoned was because the mother um felt like she could not provide for the child and so that's why she abandoned her in order for her to find a better life Wait, don't forget, she had a man and he and he convinced her to move from San Francisco, which was very Chinese friendly uh, community to Cleveland because of a job. And then they got there and she was like, I'm pregnant. And he was like, I'm out. Right. Right. So she was essentially like working herself to the bone, trying to make sure that she can provide for this baby. And when she realized that she would not be able to, she abandons her at the fire station. But then if I am not mistaken, the mother tried to refind her daughter shortly Pretty soon after. after. Yeah. And it was kind of written as if maybe she had a breakdown, you know, mm -hmm. maybe some postpartum psychosis or something, which I mean, you can kind of understand when the man left you, you work and you don't, you're just picking up the language and you're really nervous about what's happening. And so she dropped her baby off. She, they said she kind of wandered around for a while and found a, fire station and dropped the baby off and then they found her like some days later up under a bench dehydrated so she was definitely not in her right mind right and so um this whole thing goes on or whatever and so the the um the chinese woman whose name i'm forgetting i want to call her bb bb uh-huh um so bb um you know comes back and is trying to get the baby the white people who have adopted her um, are like, girl, no. So it turns into this whole thing, like the synopsis says, the splits the town. But the funniest thing is that during like the testimony, um, they're asking uh, the judge or yeah, the judge was asking how will the white people, you know, help the young baby learn her Chinese culture and all of this stuff. No, I'm sorry. It was BB's lawyer who asked this. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fucking white lady said, oh, you know, we'll take her to the Chinese restaurants. <laughs> we'll take her to art museums with Chinese exhibits, you know. Like, Shout out to you, Celeste, for being authentic there. What I tell you, I hollered. That was one of the high points in the book for me because I was like, oh, this perfect spot on shade. This is so great. So the thing you have to understand is um, about this town and this book. So maybe we should back up and talk about where we are. Um, the the book place the book the book takes place in a town called Shaker. Is it Shaker Heights, Ohio? Yep. And it is a very white um, 
mostly, you know, orderly. If you know anything about the Shakers, it's all about order and equality and whatever. And um, it's they the most of the families that we encounter anyway are wealthy, or at least well off, or at least working. You know what I'm saying? Like there's not bums in the street. Um, and in the in this, so we walk up on this family. There are four of them, four children, two parents, and the the family is I forgot the the Richardsons, and there is four kids: Lexi, Trip. Moody and Izzy, and then the mother. And they're kind of just, you know, hanging out, being white. They're not bad people, but not, they're just white people, right? And so in comes these other white people who are vagabonds. <laughs> they, it's a mother and daughter, Mia Warren and her daughter, um, Pearl, who Mia is an artist, a photographer, and she, they can just travel. Like they've been to 46, they've moved like 46 times. Some craziness, right? Yeah. Um, and they come in to this town and live in the Richardson's rental home. And uh, the family kind of falls in love. Moody and Pearl meet first and they become friends. And then she becomes like a friend of the family. And then they hire her mother as like a housekeeper slash cook and it, they just their lives just kind of come become enmeshed and so the reason that we're talking about bb is because mrs richardson's good friend since childhood is the the white adoptive mother of this baby or she's trying to adopt the baby and bb works at with mia in the chinese spot um that's her other job and so they well mia was talking she hears about the fire station story from her daughter pearl who's friends with all the richardson's kid Richardson's kids, or the Richardson's kids directly, I think. And then she's like, wait a minute, that story sounds familiar. That's like the lady I work with. <laughs> it's too good to be a coincidence. And they that's how they end up making the link. Oh, did I get everything? Yep, yeah, that was everything. So, I hated the mother. I thought she was a bitch. Mrs. Richardson? Oh my gosh. I was like, is some bus gonna hit her? Is there gonna I, be a bus? I felt like she kept getting progressively worse and it was a purposeful like decision it's just like oh can how much more trash can i make this woman oh i know let's have her do this right so i was like why like i didn't under it didn't make sense that this lady would go from being so nice to being so nasty um over this situation with this baby because she blamed her like she was more mad at mia for telling the lady her baby was over to this lady's house than she was at the lady for trying to take her baby back. <laughs> like, and she, I don't, uh, so her ax to grind with Mia and why she went like digging all through her um, past. So um, we're not talking about this chronologically either. But um, so the thing with uh, Mia and Pearl um, and why all of that is all just messed up and they're vagabonds and they move all over the place. So as Tamika said, uh, Mia's an artist, she's a photographer, and basically she moves by the whims of what she's feeling um, and how she thinks that it will help her art. But um, when we find out closer to the end of the tale that um, Mia is low-key on the lamb <laughs> because she, when she was in undergrad, she was in art school in New York City 
And one day, um, and she was working as a waitress. And one day a guy came, no, she was on the train leaving work. Sorry. And one day this guy just kept staring at her on the train. And he wouldn't stop looking at her. So she was like freaked out, get off the train at the same stop. The guy follows her and freaks her out and says, you know, so the guy basically um, stops her and says, hey, you look just like my wife and we're infertile and have been looking for a surrogate. And since you look just like my wife, we want you to be our surrogate. So here's my business card. Come go out to dinner with me and my wife. And then we talk about you being our surrogate. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. this happened in the 90s, right? The, the book took place in the 90s. Right. Yes. Was the motherfuckers just walking up to people on the street like, so yeah, I'm going to just give you some sperm. You can take this good turkey based at the back of the crib, but then, you know, just hold your knees yeah. up at a 90 degree angle. And but it was a little weird. Of course. So go on, tell them the people, because I might have skipped this next part. <laughs> <laughs> like the way that that unfolded, this whole. Yeah surrogacy thing which is weird as fuck because it was they didn't go through the proper medical channels of her getting inseminated mm-hmm. at all it which, got weird which was just strange as fuck to me um she never signed a contract with these people which they were dumb as hell so right. she was like hella pregnant she went back home for something i feel like it was her brother's birthday or something she goes back home her parents see her like oh you're pregnant what and she's like yeah you know no big deal it ain't my baby i'm just caring for some motherfuckers and her parents are like how can you abandon your child <laughs> so there's this whole thing and then she gets this guilt trip and then she's like oh shit i can't abandon this baby because it's half of me so she decides to take off with the baby and moves to san francisco and they've been on the run and she's been on the run ever since ever since no Jay, no Beyonce. I just kind of, <laughs> I just kind of felt like, who cares a shit? At one point, <laughs> it was too much, too many. Oh, this lady is on the run with her stolen baby. Well, really, it's not a stolen baby because we ain't got you ain't got no contract. But she runs into this lady who just so happens to have her baby stolen, who really didn't get her baby stolen. <laughs> the first lady got her honest, and she's going to go help her. She helped her to call the news station to put the lady on blast because the lady was like, bitch, get off my porch. And so she was like, well, I can't afford a lawyer. She's like, don't trip. Get the media involved and people will sympathize with you and you will get an attorney. She did. But I just kind of felt like, why would she put that on herself if she knows she's running? Like, why would she even want to be involved in that? Involved in it. Mm -hmm. So anyway... I just felt like this in this case, I didn't care about the kids. I thought the kids, even though they weren't villains, like I thought the kids were going to get really, really gross because kids are usually people, right? Teenagers, they're all terrible, mm-hmm. um, but they weren't all terrible. They weren't all bad. I just kind of felt like I just didn't care about them kids. And why did it need to be four of them? It was too many, <laughs> too many kids. So many kids and they didn't serve much of a purpose Yeah, beyond ridiculous plot points right so you had the oldest daughter lexi who had a black boyfriend and apparently in the 90s in shaker heights nobody saw race so you know her and her black boyfriend together you know it's all good and we're probably going to grow up and have a little mixed babies and it'll be fine because we don't see race here mm. um, that's an almost direct quote 
Um, and then what happens to Lexi? Dun dun dun. She fuck around with the fuck around. She gets pregnant by the black boyfriend. Too oh. many pregnancies in one book. Like, what the fuck? Okay, all right. <laughs> Yo, so she get pregnant by the black boyfriend. She's like, hey, black boyfriend, guess what? Have your see, son. And he's like, mm, Cliff and Claire ain't going for that. Because yes, the black kid in the book calls his parents Cliff and Claire because they are mm-hmm. black. Because she didn't get what we were trying to say about it being a rich town. Yeah. They didn't want you to so. miss that. <laughs> they didn't want you to miss that. Um, so, um, Lexi has an abortion, right? So she goes to the clinic in town to have this abortion, realizes that the woman who runs the clinic is friends with her mama, so she can't put her name down, so she puts Pearl's name down as the person who is having the abortion. Apparently, abortion clinics in the 90s did not check identification. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) Fun fact, in case you didn't know that. You can go have an, an abortion and not show any identification. Um, <laughs> so then that leads to another ridiculous subplot in which um, I can't even remember how Mrs. Richardson discovers this information, but somehow she's meeting with the lady who's the head of the abortion clinic and she sees in the patient records that Pearl's name is in there. And so she assumes that Pearl got pregnant by her son. That Pearl she had the wrong son. She thought it was Moody, and she she says it's the wrong son, but she got the wrong son, her yeah. other son, who's like you know Zach Morris, yeah, golden boy, soccer player, blonde, hot guy, and of course Pearl, being the awkward, introvert, nerdy girl, falls for the golden boy, mm-hmm. and then surprisingly, the golden boy falls for Pearl, but they only fuck around in secret in one of his friends' basements. Yeah, and so they let her take the blame. The mom gets all pissed about everything. She's just mad. She's mad at Mia for being an artist and being free. All of a sudden, she turns, you know, progressively more wicked, and she gets mad, and she's like, I want y'all out of my damn house, and <laughs> they're like, cool, and they nobody ever corrects the mom that, wait a minute, Pearl never got pregnant. This was not, this was your bitch-ass daughter. And then the youngest one, who was the free spirit, and my one of my favorite characters in the book, Izzy, <laughs> she just lets everybody know what she thinks because her mom, her and her mama kind of have a weird relationship. And the way they explained that was so stupid to me. I was like, Celeste. So Izzy is the youngest one, and everybody notices that she's harder on Izzy than Miss Richardson is harder on Izzy than the rest of her children, right? And so the reason that she gives is because she was a premature baby. And before she came along, those other three, they was just the damn, you know, poster family. The kids were exactly the way they wanted them, age, you know, as far as their ages go or whatever. And she was raising her kids and didn't have no problems. And then Izzy came along and she was premature and she always worried about Izzy. And so it said like she would do things like Izzy you know, don't do this. Are you crazy? You can't do this. And then eventually her sentences would just cut off. The concern part would cut off and it would just be like, Izzy, you can't. So like the other kids, they're all teenagers and they're all pretty close in age. But like, for instance, they go to a friend family party and the other three teenagers all ride in the car together. But Izzy has to ride in the car with the parents. (laughs) And it was like everything she did with Izzy was so over the top nasty or she would lose her patience with her. But they just but the way Celeste wrote it was because she was so concerned about her and was so used to kind of treating her like this fragile egg. That's why she was so agitated with her because 
Izzy resisted all of that. And so she would get, and I thought, well, now that don't even make sense. If this is your baby because, and you've always watched her, why would you, that doesn't mean you treat her. Right. That doesn't mean you treat her terribly. Like it did not come off as care or (laughs) it came off as like, (laughs) I thought the twist was going to be the Izzy was the love child. Somebody else, uh, baby. <laughs> I mean, it would have fit in. Yeah, there are so many other random babies that pop up. Mad at this girl for. And anyway, and then that, oh gosh. So Izzy gets mad and burns the motherfucking house down, <laughs> which also didn't make any sense because I guess she was mad at her family about the way they treated Mia and Pearl. Mm-hmm. Me and Pearl end up leaving town because they couldn't take it was too much smoke in the city. No oh, pun intended. But did you miss the part where Mia told her that she needs to burn everything down? Yes, but she wasn't saying it literally. It's <laughs> <laughs> not how Izzy took it. Izzy took some can- some gasoline and lit that bitch up like some fourth of July. <laughs> Izzy went and said, you know what? I'm going to start small fires in every room and then they will congeal into a massive fire and burn this bitch down. And then she took her, her little ends and her backpack and she ran away on the bus and she was headed towards where Mia's family is from or where they are as if Mia was going to run home. But we already know that Mia and Pearl have discussed that they'll go home someday. Do you want to meet your grandparents? Maybe one day. <laughs> Not today. Not so today. I don't know what easy ass is going to do. But the end she kind of suggested that Izzy never did come home. <laughs> yeah, no. They were like, it was a, like a manhunt for her. I'm like, so where did she go? We know it's hard out here for 15-year-old girls in the, in the streets. What the hell? It's just, does she end up on drugs? Is she on that end? Is she <laughs> selling ass? Is she? It was left very open. Um, and sometimes I don't mind that. But in this case, I minded it a lot. I think I could have accepted if she was... I could have accepted if she was Lexi's age and she was 18 with a car and some, you know what I mean? Like that would have, but I'm like, she was 18 with a backpack and a couple coins and it was the fucking mid nineties. Right. How far is she getting? Yeah. I had no cell phone. I just kind of felt like "Mm, you might as well have made her 12. That's just, it was, it was strange. Um, So no more white book song. (laughs) (laughs) Woo. <laughs> oh god oh god I just couldn't relate to none of this shit none of this seemed like real problems to me it except was, for BB oh. and her baby I was just like this is so much but friend BB had the best story I was like could you have not written a book about this <laughs> like BB oh. was like okay I want to know I'm, about BB and her baby's life in Canton I want to know about the because BB was sitting across the, she said, okay, this court shit is what it is. I see how it is. Basically, they want, they got to keep the baby. And it seemed like there was a visit. To, I might have skipped this part. There was a visitation. Mm-hmm. You know, they were letting her come around, see the baby, whatever. So she's sitting across the street and she's like, okay, I know about now. And they would be taking the bath. And I know what she's doing. She's sitting there, sitting there plotting. Then she sees the lights go out. And then I guess the fam, the parents were so tired. They were slept a good sleep and they couldn't, they woke up like, why did we sleep so good? Damn. It's 10. And anybody with a baby, a one-year-old, will tell you if you slept to 10, something is wrong. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, that shit ain't normal. Yo, baby, um, right there. Yeah. So 
she goes in there and the baby is gone. And by the time the police get there um, and figure out what happened, sister friend, by the time, cause remember she kept, she took her the night before for a plane to Canton at 11 that night. Yep. So by the time that woman woke up, they was half, they was almost home. And they was like, it ain't no way that y'all gonna get that baby back. And they put some money into trying to find her, but you know, we're like, so I know I didn't feel sorry for but them. They ended up with another Chinese Asian. baby. Yeah. yeah. I didn't feel sorry for them. I was like, okay, y'all have had her for a while and I understand the attachment, but her mama is right there. Like, I kind of got it. I think they told their story like we were supposed to be sympathetic, but I was like, just buy you another baby. That's fine. Y'all got the money too. <laughs> I mean, I just consider it a foster. I just felt like this book went in so many different directions. Mm -hmm. And I did not care about traveling down many of those paths. Me neither. And then we got to the end and it just felt incomplete. And I was just like, okay, so this, I'm done. It was flat. And I tried to, like, I sat with it a little bit after finishing, like, okay, let it sink in and then, like, unpack your thoughts about it. And I was just like, no, you just, you still don't like it. You know, and I also think, I also thought, I don't mean to make it seem like all Asian writers have to do things the same way, <laughs> but like I come to a Asian writer to read about the Asian experience and maybe that's not right. As a matter of fact, it is not right. It's she not. Can write about it's, whatever she you're wants. doing with a old girl. With the it's bed. not. She can write whatever she wants, but Celeste gave us a good story with Asian characters in it last book and it wasn't an Asian experience story but it was in the sense that that dynamic is there I guess what I'm saying is they don't have to be like stereotypically Asian but it would have been interesting to see because you got a glimpse of it with BB what is it like to be a minority for real in this type of town that doesn't think that there's any sort of race issues that doesn't see like I just I guess what I'm trying to say is I really wasn't interested in a book in a town that didn't see color and never really addresses it yes um because yeah that Asian food Asian restaurant shit was touching on it but imagine if the family had been you know if some other body somebody else in there or from the black boyfriend's perspective or whatever it just would have made for an interesting book but it really was just a book about white people in a white town and white problems on white things. And that's where I'm just like, no, she didn't have to write no whole thing about being sorry, you know, being sad and Asian in the all white town and not having, I mean, that's, I'm yeah. sure that book is out there. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying like. The this point whole, the perspective would have been more dynamic had it come from a minority in this all white town. Yeah. And even like the Asian adoption story is compelling. I just, I guess I'm, what I'm saying is it would have made for more of an original book, like the rich white family with rich white problems. Oh, my mom is overbearing and she don't like me, but we got a lot of money and this one's going to Yale. Oh, this one has too many friends and he's too cute and too popular. Will he ever find a girl who's deep? Oh, like it was like, and the most interesting thing in the book just happened to be the story about whether or not this white family could keep this Asian baby. And I'm just like, I don't know if you call that an Asian story, if I am being wrong, but that's <laughs> how I feel. In this particular case, it did not fly. Yeah, agreed. So, yeah, there's that. <laughs> um, I haven't liked the past five books we've reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> 
But that's all going to change. It is. Uh, do you want to, um, now that I've read it, do you want to just say that we'll talk about an American marriage? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, before I forget everything. Yeah. All right. So let's do it. So that'll be the next book to read, guys. If you have not read it already, next show we will be talking about An American Marriage by one Miss Tiare Jones. And listen, it's going to be a long episode. <laughs> so maybe we can just do one where we just do. We've done, we've done that before. Or we just cover the book. No news. Yeah, I think we should just, just do the book for that one. Okay. Um, okay. So be prepared. I'm ready. We ain't even got to stress about it. We ready. Um, right. Tamika, got a question for you. Mm-hmm. What are you reading? Just finish this dry ass book. Um, <laughs> other than this book, I finished City of Saviors. That's the last book four of the Detective Eloise Norton series by Rachel Housel Hall. I have been talking about these books for a minute. You've been talking about them much longer, but I just finished them. So uh, we'll talk about those someday. Yes. But I really like the, the, I'm like, come on, girl. And then it's, the next book is not going to be Eloise Norton. I'm just trying to be of the yeah. mind where at least we're getting more from Rachel Hauser Hall. I'm just sad saying, it won't can be you just, but I know you got a draft. Can't you release two books? <laughs> Could you, um, would you mind sending me over some recommendations that are close? What are some of them? I don't know that there are any. If y'all read crime stories, detective stories, crime procedurals, and you know any that star black lady that are good, um, shoot me a Because text. prior to um, the Rachel Housel Hall books, like the last person that I read that had a similar but not exactly the same vibe was um long time ago. Like this is when like, late 90s early 2000s um valerie wilson wesley had a detective named tamara hale mm-hmm. and i think that was like five or six books in that series but probably trying to read that shit like now is hella dated mm-hmm. and it probably won't hit you in the same way you know yeah like i haven't read those in forever so i wouldn't even be like girl yeah go back and read the tamara hales because no We'll find something. I'm sure somebody out there will help us find what we need to find um, or what I would like to find. But that's what I've been reading. I don't know what I'm going to read next, but I'm going to read something because I've been doing good about reading books. <laughs> so, right on. what are you reading? I am not reading a thing. Um, the last thing I read was An American Marriage, and obviously we're going to discuss that. So. Okay. I won't go into detail. Um, yeah, I have not been good about reading books. We need to pick something else because we've got some momentum going here. I'm saying, yeah, I'll get with you off offline. Yeah, we'll um, come together as one. <laughs> um, that is the show. Tune in next time where we talk about American marriage. You have to keep it real. <laughs> Bye, guys. (laughs) Bye.